everyone. Um, I am uh, substituting Andy Levine today. Dr. Levine is in the middle of procedure, so I get to have the pleasure of uh, introducing Dr. Govano. Um, I have interacted with Dr. Govano briefly in person, but most of our interactions have been over the phone. It's always been very pleasant, educational, and very collaborative, so it's always a good thing when he's on the other side of the phone call. Uh, as you, most of you know, he's a professor of, uh, in the Department of uh, Anesthesiology, as well as the Executive Vice Chair. He is triple board certified in emergency medicine, anesthesiology, and critical care medicine. Today, he will be talking to us about um, sharing his expertise with regards to sedation for critical, critically ill patients within our adult ICU. So, um, Dr. Govano, go ahead. Great. Well, great to see everybody virtually here and uh, look forward to talking about this over the next 40 minutes or so. Um, so we're going to talk today about sedation for critically ill adults. We're going to really just highlight some of the main drugs that we use. I'll remind you of some of the side effects that we've got to be aware of, share some of the literature, and then introduce a couple of newer things that we might be hearing about more in the near future. Our objectives are to really look at some of the myths and misconceptions that we have some of, when we use some of these sedative agents. Okay, we'll talk about some of the literature some of the pharmacotherapeutic properties for commonly used sedative agents that we use. And then hopefully at, by the end of this, you'll have a just a good reminder of some of the national, international recommendations that we have for how we really should be using sedatives when we're addressing pain, agitation, and delirium in, intensive, uh, in the intensive care unit. I don't have any disclosures really that are related to this. Um, I can tell you a lot of this stuff's going to be in the boards uh, without giving away any questions. We I write for all the boards now, so neurocritical care and critical care. So just uh, a lot of this stuff will show up, but uh, I'll leave it at that. And nothing else to disclose related to this. All right, here's how I'd like to do this because, you know, I, I can just give you slide after slide about propofol and Presidex and other stuff. But rather than do that, and we will do some of that, but I, I want to really – try to give you a clinical context for some of the scenarios that you might encounter. These are real scenarios that I've encountered, and you can just think about how you would manage it and how that's applicable to the independent drugs that we're, we're going we're to use. W within these, some of these encounters that I'm going to present as, as a problem-based approach, you'll see some myths that we may have about sedatives. And there will be a lot of pharmacology that we can review in this lecture as well, because that's pretty important to understand when we use these agents. All right, so before we begin, I just want to remind you uh, and review some of the assessment tools because uh, when we titrate these agents and we administer them, we really have to know what our goal is. We have to help our nurses understand exactly what we're titrating to. Uh, the days of just leaving everybody in a coma have long disappeared from the intensive care unit. Really have a huge emphasis on trying to keep our patients awake and interactive and delirium-free as we can. And so it's important to have goals and do a good assessment. Um, a stepwise approach to pain assessment is recommended. And I think everybody understands the major problem we have with delirium. It results, it's, it's extraordinarily prevalent and prolonged hospitalization, increased mortality, costs, you name it. But we want to be assessing for delirium every day. I think everybody knows that. This is a review. I'm going to go through this quickly. I think you're all familiar with the ABCDEF bundle that we should be using in our intensive care units. Important to just, you know, highlight the C part here, which, you know, really understanding the importance of depth of sedation and choosing the right medication. 
And that's where I hope this talk will hopefully just help a little bit, maybe maybe a little bit of a review, but and then some newer things that we might be doing to help accomplish this. The numerical rating scale is really important, and I think everybody knows what this is. It's been uh, pretty well validated. There's a couple alternatives, such as the behavioral pain scale. This has been validated mostly in cardiac surgery patients. And unfortunately, um, I'm just going to go through these quickly. You'll have the slides. I'll, I have a link at the end if you'd like these. Um, these two scales are not exactly interchangeable. Self-reported numerical rating scale and the behavioral pain scale, just to, to go back to that behavioral this is really where we get into looking at things like facial expression and movement of the patient when they can't talk to us because they're intubated. And they're not exactly interchangeable, but if you can't use a numerical rating scale because your patient's pretty well sedated or unable to participate, then the BPS would be another alternative. And again, it has a lot of things that you can do just at the bedside without having the patient really jot down an, an NRS number for you. But really important because as we talk about analgo sedation, this is important to understand if pain is a major component of your uh, sedation or needs to be a major component of your sedation strategy and addressing pain adequately, really important. There's also the critical care pain observation tool. And this is just another tool that was validated in a small study at UCSF. And uh, they looked at you know, assessing delirium with our standard CAM ICU assessments, which I think we're all familiar with. And then just to review, you know, this is the way we should be doing it, stepping through our sedation assessment, knowing what the proper scale on the RAS is. Look, we have a lot of new nurses in our intensive care units. It's important. We have to educate this. Sometimes they may have never heard of what a CAM assessment is or a RAS. But if we're going to have an agree on a goal for what we want them to titrate to, then using these scales is super important. So you'll find yourself, I think everyone who's on this lecture right now will find yourself doing some education about this occasionally, and that's okay. But we want to be really clear about where we're at. And just, you know, keeping in mind, I mean, I think we have to remind ourselves, a RAS of four is outright combative. So just start there. But this scale is not, it's not the same. There's, there's a plus four and a negative three. Negative three gets you into moderate sedation. And beyond that, we're really talking about completely kind of out of it. So RAS and negative four and negative five is really basically inducing a complete coma in, in that sense. Um, may have a little bit of stimulation, but um, negative five, they're going to be completely unarousable. So understanding this scale is super important. I just want to footstop this quickly because I think this is a really important component to everything we're about to talk about. Now, um, and then the CAM ICU, I'm going to skip over this because I think everybody understands what this is, but the RAS figures very uh, dominantly in this, and it's something we have to understand. Then we have the modified Ramsey score, which is still used at some hospitals. It may be used by some of our visiting fellows. I'm not sure, but just to be aware, it's another scale that we, we used to use here in parts of our hospital, but really the CAM ICU is kind of the way to go, and uh, that's what we really want to emphasize. So I just wanted to review that quickly because I think that's super important when we start to talk about how we're going to titrate and administer these medications. So just a quick review for you there. But let's get into some actual clinical scenarios. How does this apply? Let's take this patient. Here's an IVDA, IV drug abusing patient who comes in with multiple traumatic injuries, femur, some ribs, 
just had an X lap, took the spleen out, 42 years old, and you show up on service and you're told, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do an opioid sparing approach on this patient. We're not we don't want the opioids. This patient had an X lap, we want to get that bowel function back. And by the way, they're an IV drug user, so let's let's try to reset them a little. Let's use this opportunity to reset them. Let's reset them. Okay. So how are we going to do that? Well, this is what you, you show up with, the ketamine infusion of 2 milligrams per kilogram per hour and Presidex at 1.7 mics per kg per hour. So pretty good, pretty hefty doses there. So does this, how does this work? Um, and I'm kind of using this example to kind of as a segue to get into ketamine. So ketamine has been around for quite a while. It's been around since the 60s. It was initially synthesized as an alternative to PCP, actually. Um, this is Kelvin Stevens from Wayne State University. He's the first scientist to really develop this agent in the lab. It's highly, it's a dissociative agent. We'll talk about what that means because that's, that's one of the problems we encounter with ketamine and some patients like that. Some other patients can't stand that. It's very lipophilic, so it has a large volume of distribution. When we give this as an induction agent, it crosses the blood-brain barrier extremely quickly. We know this in anesthesiology and in emergency medicine, right? A very quick onset of action, near immediate, within 30 seconds. Something to consider because of the lipophilicity is the accumulation in obesity. And that's something to think about in patients who may uh, be obese that you're taking care of and you've had them on a ketamine infusion for a while. You may not wake up right away. They may still have a higher, they may have a higher risk of getting dissociated. So those are things to think about in terms of uh, the pharmacokinetics of this agent. And speaking of that, you know, linear pharmacokinetics, uh, does have a peak effect of analgesia in about less than five minutes. We'll talk about the analgesic effect because that's something that's very uh, sometimes not completely understood when this is used. Um, other things here, protein binding, really not not a whole ton of stuff here that we're uh, we're going to get into. Interestingly, the um, S and Tantamir is more potent analgesic, but it's not available in the USA. But if you go over to Europe or another country, you might see this used. And it actually has some more analgesic properties than the, than the formulation we use here in the United States. How does ketamine work? Well, it's got a lot of mechanisms, and I think you've all read about this. It does have some opioid receptor modulation, which is described very variably in the literature. What I can tell you is that it's not reversed by naloxone. Um, so that tells us that it's not a direct opioid effect. NMDA blockade, GABA inhibition, and here's an important point with ketamine and why we really do like it a lot of times in critical care is that you get in, increased release and decreased reuptake of many neurotransmitters, such as norepinephrine. And so that's why we get this indirect sapathomimetic effect because of that increased or decreased, rather, reuptake of norepinephrine. That's very beneficial, um, could be beneficial potentially. But here's the problem with ketamine, the dissociative effect. And again, some patients like this. Some patients will use this as a recreational drug, and they really like having that feeling that their um, their body is completely dissociated from their mind. And I don't know what that feels like, but I'm only describing what has been described to me from patients that have been on this. But this is going to be your patient with their eyes open. Uh, they may have, they will likely have nystagmus. They will have conservation of their laryngeal and corneal reflexes. That's a good thing but they will be spaced out and appear to be dreaming, completely disconnected from their environment. 
And what's really described with this drug is this feeling of being detached from your surroundings and detached from yourself. These concepts of derealization or depersonalization. And that actually occurs because there's a disinhibition of the pyramidal neurons and enhanced uh, glutaminergic firing a glutamate burst that occurs when this drug is uh, when this drug is given. So this is the effect that can be problematic in these patients because you will have patients when you put them on this, you'll save their life, you'll do everything right. But the one thing they'll remember is, I don't know what that drug you gave me, but man, don't ever give me that again. We've had that in our follow some of our follow-up clinics. We've had some patients come to us and report this. We probably need to do a better job of studying it, to be quite frank. But um, this is the effect that we want to try to figure out in the ICU. You know, if we're going to use this at these high doses, like I'm describing for this patient, you got to watch out for this. And, and this is a potential negative consequence of ketamine. But what exactly is that dissociative dose? Where, where's that threshold where you will get dissociated? It's different for every patient, and it's definitely different for critically ill patients. And I can't give you a great answer. What I can tell you, and I've what I put here in bold is in a healthy volunteer study that were given different doses of ketamine, I'm talking 0.1 to up to 0.5 mg per kg. What they found in this healthy volunteer study was that around 0.5 is where that dissociative effect kind of started to set up and that was reported by these healthy volunteers. It's different for every patient, but this is really that kind of that paper, I think, that establishes one of the papers, the best that I can find, that kind of establishes that dissociative threshold. Keep in mind that the doses we're using in the ICU, especially with the lipophilicity, we're probably going to easily get across this threshold pretty quickly. In anesthesia, we run patients that, if we're going to use this as a general anesthetic, and even when we induce patients, you know the induction dose is well above this. So we're going to be instantly into that dissociative effect and really a more general anesthesia effect at doses near 1, 1 1.5 mg per kg. And so just keep that in mind. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if we find this useful, but it just reminds me that if I've got a patient who I think could be at risk to be dissociated on ketamine, then I want to really keep that dose down uh, so that I just get that opioid sparing effect. I'll talk about that next and get some of the other potential benefits out of ketamine as an adjunct to sedation, uh, rather than have this full-on full dissociative dosing that can occur. It's just something to be cognizant of. My, my own personal practice, and many of our pharmacists I, I know would, would agree, is to try to keep the dose a little bit lower, because even a low dose can give you some opioid sparing, as we'll talk about, and maybe some, some a little bit more analgesia to add in. Just to review more of the mechanisms, I won't go through all this, but there's a whole ton of channel effects. There's neuromodulatory effects. There's even gene expression. Uh, it's important to know that this drug is really multidimensional. There's multiple things going on here. It's not just a pure analgesic. It's not just a pure hypnotic. It's kind of got all of these uh, factors and potential benefits and side effects that we have to contend with. What are some other effects that we have to worry about? Well, this has been described. You'll hear about the negative, the direct myocardial depressant effect. And I've got a reference there that gets into that if you want to read up on that. It, it's true. It's been observed in several studies that there is a direct myocardial depressant effect. But most patients, this effect is outweighed by that decreased reuptake of neurotransmitters, that indirect sympathomimetic effect. 
There's other benefits here, and Dr. Mazzeppi, who was formerly on faculty here, uh, now down at the University of Virginia as an executive vice chair, uh, has published a really good paper in 2015 on this because Mike was trying to use this drug in this cardiac uh, surgical intensive care unit, and he's getting a lot of resistance, like, no, we don't want to use that. It's going to make everybody tachycardic, and it's got the myocardial depressant effect. And so Mike really did a great review, and some of the things that he found were actually, you know, decreased troponin release. It may attenuate lung injury. It can lower interleukin levels. So there's a lot of potential good things that go on with ketamine. And I, I have to say it's a drug that I definitely think about using a lot in my own population of patients that we take care of. And uh, use, like uh, I think it's a very valuable adjunct to have. Also in the OR, we use this as a part of a multimodal approach uh, very frequently. I just want to remind you about this concept of analgo sedation. This is a, a really a, a big concept about in the last decade that we've been talking a lot, of, lot more about in the critical care communities. And there's this emphasis on pain relief and discomfort before you start sedating patients. If you give a patient propofol, they'll stop moving, but there's no analgesic effect with that. And so does that cover up things? Probably. So this idea that we want to have analgo sedation in the ICU is really, um, it can be tricky because it doesn't mean just putting someone on a fentanyl infusion because then you don't get the hypnosis or the sedation necessarily. They may not move. They may be out of it, but they could remember um, things. And it's, it's not, it's just one component. So we have to really pay attention to the pain side of things. And that's what, going back to this patient who's an IVDA, that we're trying to quote unquote reset, is that really what we're gonna accomplish with ketamine and dexmedetomidine? So that's the question to ask. Just going through how we use ketamine as an analgo sedative agent, and these are just some of the things here that are really advantageous with using ketamine. By the way, the dosing range, I gave you a, a suggested threshold, but that's a one-time dose, so not very helpful for ICU patients. But you will see doses in the literature reported all the way from low dose, like, and I'm using mic milligrams per kilogram here, not mics. You can convert it to micrograms, just move the decimal points, but most of us use mix per kg per hour. And this is the typical dosing range, 0.06 to 2, and 2 is definitely on the higher end, okay? That's more of a, what we would use in the OR to do what we call a total intravenous anesthetic. Um, so that's just to keep in mind, that's a pretty high dose, a general anesthesia level dose. Morphine consumption is decreased, though, with this agent. There have not been shown to be changes in ICP or cerebral perfusion pressure. I'll show you another good resource on that in just a minute. Tube feeding tolerance. This is a big one for surgical patients. If we can get their gut working sooner, that's huge. So I like that. I like that effect of this, and I like the fact that it decreases our opioids, which that's not a good thing that we have to deal with when we're on high-dose opioids. And you get these other effects as well due to the neurotransmitters, uh, decreased need for GL motility agents, and then also you may have an increased MAP, all of which has been observed in this very nice systematic review out of the University of Arizona back in 2017. Going back to the dosing here, uh, just to show you that, um, for maintenance sedation, so this is what's described. If you're going to just do it, use it as a, a short-term sedative, um, you know, you can give a, a whopping dose. That's also an induction dose if you're going to induce, an, uh, induce for intubation and secure the airway. But the doses, once we get to the sedative range, are around 0.1, like I showed you, 0.1 to all the way up to maybe even 2.5. It's definitely in the higher end. 
highly variable in terms of what's been reported in the literature. And again, this is another paper that out of Pittsburgh with uh, some folks from Stanford that just looked at a review of different dosing regimens. And they, they try to provide some recommendations here, uh, you know, a bolus that's much smaller than an induction bolus. And then looking at an infusion, you see that here they use micrograms. I think that's really confusing. It's nice to just use one unit and stick to it. But it is weight-based, and uh, that's, that's how they, they talk about using it here in this paper. Um, what about the analgesic properties? There are analgesic properties of ketamine, but if I, I'm going to have a hard time making an argument to you that there's a, um, a milligram per milligram equianalgesic dosing. What I can tell you is that they did try to look at this in a study that was done by uh, two of my Air Force colleagues, actually, back in 2015. They tried to look at this, and what they did was they, uh, they used this for patients in the ED that had abdominal or flank pain, kidney stones, abdominal conditions, or extremity pain. And what they did was compared it to a standard kind of loading dose of morphine, 0.1 mg per kg morphine. That's a pretty standard starting dose for morphine compared with lidocaine, 0.3 mg per kg. And what they found was uh, there really wasn't any significant change in the numeric rating scale between the two. So, um, and they did see that uh, ketamine was actually associated with a faster onset of analgesia, but I guess that, that paper is really one of the best ones I can find if you're gonna look for a milligram per milligram comparison to morphine. Again, it's not blocked by naloxone. It's not all about mu receptors. It's probably more about reducing the pain windup that you get and in terms of inhibition and the long-term potentiation in those dorsal horn neurons at the spinal cord level. That's probably where ketamine's working, and it really has an effect on the sodium channels as well at that level in the spinal cord. But um, the point here is that uh, it's really hard for me to tell you exactly what the, uh, the milligram per milligram conversion is. This study uh, done by, was an adult, the one I'm referring to by Miller et al. in 2015, was the wake patients in an emergency department setting. So um, that's probably the, one of the best comparators that I think is out there that I've seen in the literature. And again, that 0.3 of ketamine mix per kg to 0.1 mix per kg uh, for at least the initial dose gives you an idea. Lots of side effects with this drug. Um, some are things that we don't really get too worried about. Um, it, you know, we talk about this troponins going down, and I, I list this here because in a lot of textbooks, they still list increased myocardial oxygen consumption. So, you know, if you do have a patient in cardiogenic shock or having an acute MI, it's probably not the best agent. We don't want them getting more tachycardic. And, um, but if you've got a recovering cardiac surgery patient, you're just trying to add some opioid sparing and get their GI tract going again, then look at that Mazepi paper. You're going to see that probably is effective in that, that instance. The psychotropic effects are very common. They're not always reliably protected by benzodiazepines. I know that the common teaching is, well, if I'll give ketamine, if I'm going to do it for a brief sedation, I'll just give some midazolam with it, midazolam reverse that with it, and I won't have to worry about the emergence delirium that occurs when the patient wakes up. That's more for just short-term sedation if we're doing a painful procedure. There's also this idea that it can cause increased pulmonary artery pressures. I can tell you that in a few patients I've used this on that have had a PA catheter, I have not observed that. I don't think it's reported very reliably in the literature. Uh, there's a couple reports that mention this, but I, I, I have a hard time telling you that that's a, a major, major side effect because I just don't feel like we see it very often 
when we have patients, and I've tried to pay attention to it, the few patients when we have a PA catheter in. Um, metagenic, yeah, maybe if you're just using it short term. Again, I haven't seen that a lot, and I've used a lot of ketamine for sedation, but it is reported. And then the last point to make about this really is if you've got a patient who's been in shock for quite a while, say that they've been transferred to our facility from an outside hospital and just kind of been smoldering out there for a while because they're not source controlled and they're septic and or maybe they're bleeding and they're really catecholamine depleted. Ketamine can, in that in that instance, um, have hypotension associated with it due to that direct myocardial depressant effect. And that's really what we're talking about with patients who are catecholamine depleted. There's no way to know that unless, really, I mean, you can measure catecholamine levels. They're not going to come back or send out labs, at least at our institution. But what you'll uh, you'll often see is that you have to put that clinical picture together and just try to understand, hey, this is a patient who's been really inflamed for a while. I, maybe I should be a little more careful with my ketamine dosing so we don't, you know, affect the bad hemodynamic consequence due to this catecholamine depletion. <coughs> Excuse me, a really good paper, one of my favorites. It's from 2010, but it gets into the medical mythology of ketamine when we use it as an induction agent for patients with head injury. This paper has really helped debunk this. It really goes through the kind of the original case series that showed ketamine increasing ICP in patients with hydrocephalus. So it's a little bit of a different disease state than patients who have a traumatic brain injury or a neurologic issue going on. And in fact, ketamine, as I've shown you, has a lot of potentially um, neuroprotective effects. So I don't worry about this with head injury. I think it's a good induction agent. That's a separate talk. But I don't worry about this too much. And if the doses we're using to get opioid reduction and such, um, this is really, really not a concern, in my opinion, for most patients. Now, um, recent indications that have been published throughout the whole COVID pandemic, there is one paper that looked at this. And this is the range that they used, uh, 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per hour in severe COVID ARDS. We've done that, too, here when we had our onslaught of COVID. We definitely used ketamine quite frequently in a lot of our patients, including patients on ECMO. And there's one paper here, a small paper, not, not a huge paper, uh, really, um, I think it was only 124 patients. They did see some lower mortality, but it's really hard to tease out ketamine as a factor with that. I don't think they did the right analysis for that. But what they did show is that the vasopressor requirements were decreased in, that, in the population of patients who had received ketamine. So that's another potential advantage. So look, I think ketamine's a good adjunct. Uh, I think if you're going to use it at general anesthesia doses of up to 2, 2.5, then you're probably going to be well in that dissociative range you'll probably not get a whole lot more analgesia out of those kind of doses. You probably need other drugs to give with it. Um, but if you use it at lower doses, more along in that 0.1 and less than 0.5 range, you'll get some opioid sparing. You may get some beneficial GI motility. You'll get some additional sedation with it, um, short, hopefully, of full dissociative effects. And so that's where I think this drug can be helpful is at the lower doses um, it can be very helpful. If you want to really, if you really do want to ultra rapid detox someone, by the way, this is how it's done. It's not done with ketamine, and it's not even done with propofol, really, uh, at least not described. Uh, in the early 2000s, I was at a hospital that was doing this actually uh, back when I was, well, even before the 2000s, I, I was an intern in 2000. So, uh, ultra rapid detox was done by having having a patient come in, you intubate them. 
And then you actually put them on naltrexone or naloxone, and you give them a general anesthetic such as the volatile, like isoflurane or sevoflurane. That's how you ultra-rapid detox someone. You don't do it with ketamine, really. So, honestly, to say you're going to detox someone and avoid opioids completely, um, okay, good luck. I, I'm not sure if it really works. So I'm just going to leave that leave that out there as, for you to think about. I will say that, you know, I, I again, I, I just uh, put one more quick plug in for ketamine. I really do like it as an induction agent. And this is a patient, uh, study that had 234 patients with Atomidate, 235 got ketamine. And you can see here that ketamine kind of came out, you know, uh, there's a, the line of identities crossed, but you can see some trends here with ketamine. Uh, maybe being a little bit better for some of our septic patients, maybe being a little better or at least equivocal to accommodate for our trauma patients. Um, you get more adrenal insufficiency with the accommodate group, but just keep in mind, it's interesting, they actually checked for that with ketamine and found up to 48% of their patients with ketamine also got adrenal insufficiency. So, you know, take this for what it's worth. Uh, this is This is just a nice subgroup analysis where they actually did ACTH testing and, you know, I know Atomidate is the drug that always gets the bad rap for uh, adrenal suppression, but actually in this study, they showed some of that with ketamine, too. Less than Atomidate, but definitely can still happen or was associated with it. So I'll just leave that out there. All right, moving on to propofol. And I'll go through quickly with propofol, because I think everybody knows how to use propofol. But let me give you an example of um some of the things we want to watch out for, at least remind you of, of the dangers with propofol that we can sometimes encounter. Here's a patient on, who had status epilepticus at an outside hospital, and you know, they were giving her propofol uh, 90 mics per kilogram per minute. Pretty good dose. Phenytoin and midazolam, okay. Triglycerides were up to 688, and their ICU date 8. So think about that. Think about what you do in this situation. What are you concerned about? Well, we'll come back to that. I think I think most people know what we're concerned about here with that picture. Real quickly with propofol, also very lipophilic, so that's why when we give it, it works pretty quickly, 30 seconds. It's got a pretty short duration of action, so it's a drug we can back out of if we're using it pretty quickly for sedation, uh, or short-term sedation, that is. It has a large volume of distribution, and it's very protein-bound. So in critically ill patients, we have to be cognizant of this because that volume of distribution can mean that when we shut it off, the patient may not always wake up if, they're still, if they've been on really high doses for a long time. Most of the time, this isn't too much of a concern because it has really good hepatic elimination as long as the liver is working well. And you can see the half-life of elimination here is pretty favorable, 40 minutes. But it can be extended if you're critically ill and you've been on propofol for quite a while. That half-life can be increased tremendously up to one to three days if you've been on a 10-day infusion. This is right out of our textbooks in anesthesia. So just really basic stuff. You know that it doesn't have any anesthetic effect. That's, that's a common, uh, I think everybody appreciates that. What about the um, nut and soy allergy? So I've got more slide notes, and I've got a QR code at the end. If you want the references, I've got them all. This, I'm, I've tried to give you some of the references in the corner of these slides, but I've got a whole other library with all the references for this talk. The use is supposedly contraindicated in patients that are hypersensitive, but multiple studies have looked at this, and even the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology state that this is used. This use is safe if they've got just hypersensitivity. 
Where you want to avoid it is they've got a no-kidding anaphylactic reaction to eggs or soy. And that is very, very rare, very rare. So when you see this allergy on the chart, clarify it. Make sure it's not just the hypersensitivity. Um, I can tell you in the anesthesia world, we don't get too excited about this anymore. It's really got to be a severe allergy that's documented or, or a history of that before we jump into other agents and avoid propofol, just to put that out there. This is the part that I just wanted to highlight with propofol because this is what we ha are always worried about in the ICU when we use this agent. Propofol-related infusion syndrome, PRIS. There's no widely accepted definition, but I'm going to give you some good laboratory parameters I think that will help you pick this up early if, if you see it. It's been classically described as about 1.1% of all patients who receive propofol and originally described in kids and, and is supposedly a little bit more um, prevalent in children. This is also one of the reasons why it's not recommended for use in kids over 48 hours. Uh, but that 1% is probably inflated by many of the pediatric cases, and it's probably far lower than that nowadays. Um, I, I can tell you, uh, I've seen three what we think are three what we think are confirmed cases of PRIS. One when I was a fellow, two since I've been working at this institution. One of those three cases, it's still controversial whether or not it was really PRIS, honestly. But here's the thing, um, the definition, if you're on high dose, and we're talking five MIGs per kid per hour for over 48 hours, so this is not something we commonly see at low doses of propofol. We just don't see it usually. It's not reported in the literature to occur that way. Um, and the way you pick up on it is without that standardized definition, the things you're going to really see as primary features are going to be signs of rhabdo, ECG changes, and an acidosis. An acidosis that's just kind of still there or getting worse or not going away and you can't explain it. That should put up your antenna that, hey, maybe we got some frisk going on here. Other things that can be secondary features, you may see hyperkalemia, hopefully not because that's a late sign, cardiogenic shock, liver enzymes, fever. These are all associated with PRIS. The fever is important because a lot of folks will, if they've been to the OR recently, there could be a confusion about whether it's malignant hyperthermia. Um, so primary, secondary features. What you don't see here, lip, lipidemia is one of them, but that's lipidemia. That's not triglyceride, hypertriglyceridemia. We check triglycerides, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But what I would encourage you to think about is if you're worried about PRIS, look for those primary features because that's what's going to indicate that you're really headed more towards PRIS uh, versus just seeing lipids go up. That doesn't mean the patient has PRIS. doesn't mean we don't we avoid the agent and change it around. We probably will, but it's not PRIS just with lipids alone. It's not usually. So the EKG changes we see are very similar to, as you can see here, uh, a Brigada-like phenomena. You can see uh, type 1. This is coved ST elevation, usually in V1 through 3. Here's some examples of what that may look like. So if you start to see some ECG changes on propofol like this, you should probably stop it uh, just to be safe. But this is what's really described. And the reason we see this and why we see this with propofol is it's probably occurring in patients that have some form of a sodium channelopathy, some undiagnosed sodium channelopathy, and that's where we would see this more commonly. Okay, more risk factors. High dose. This is a good paper that looked at 
uh, risk factors published in 2019. High mortality with this, high mortality. But going back to what I what I was just saying about the lipids, they did, they only saw lipidemia in about 20 to 40 percent of patients. Is there a relationship with steroids? They weren't able to definitively tease that out in this paper, but that's possible. But really, what they saw was a lot of acidosis with ECG changes. That's where they saw that's how they really ruled this in and saw that that was a very common feature. But there wasn't one single clinical feature common to all in these in the patients that they looked at here. This was a really 108 studies that were conglomerated into this. 44 were pediatric studies, 124 were adults, okay? And the mortality is probably lower nowadays than it used to be. It's probably closer to 30, 32%, but 50% has been reported historically. It's got a, it's a, either way, it's a high mortality. We want to avoid this. If we start seeing these things, we want to act on it and avoid this agent and get to a different drug. This is just data from the logistic regression from the 168 published case reports of PRS. And you can see the, the very clear dose relationship with mortality. Once again, we're talking about high dose propofol here is really where we see this, this phenomena of PRIS. Okay. How do we monitor then for this? I know we check triglycerides. I know that most of us feel that once the triglycerides get above a thousand or close to that, we'll stop it and go to an alternative agent. And that's probably okay. But just keep in mind, once again, you may only, there may be some patients who have PRIS that only have lipids elevated in around 20 to 40%. Okay. So the lipids are not an independent strong marker for PRIS. They're not. It's one of many things. Lactate is helpful, but the elevation can be a late sign. What I think is more valuable is if you have, if you're really going to check for PRIS, you should send a CK or a CPK. And if that's over 5,000, you should absolutely stop the propofol, okay? When we go through and look at um, the pathophysiology of this, once again, very similar to what we see in mitochondrial cytopathies or channelopathies. One risk factor for this that's come out in some of the studies has been low carbohydrate supply. So if you've got a really emaciated patient who comes in, cachectic, and you're not able to feed them for some reason, a lot of our surgical patients have these problems we go through. They've got GI dysfunction, failure, high pressors. Um, this may be a risk factor for PRIS. So you put them on a high dose of propofol, not getting a lot of carbs, not getting any nutrition. That could be another risk factor to think about. And the idea here is, with the mitochondrial damage and the accumulation of free fatty acids, uh, that could be that could be a consideration. It's interesting, and I bring this up because one suggested treatment for PRIS is to think about carbohydrate substitution or putting a patient on basically some dextrose. That's one thing you can add into your um, treatment uh, approach potentially. Theoretical, it's not proven, but something to think about with this idea that there's this low carbohydrate supply could be a risk factor. How do we treat this if we see it? We stop the infusion. We treat our electrolyte derangements as per standard. Dialysis is important to get going soon. And then anything you can do to counteract that acidosis, all of our standard measures, it's, it's also common. And I can in one of the patients I'm talking about and referring to you did go on ECMO. And that carbohydrate substitution, I think, is a good idea to think about. I don't think there's much harm with it, you know, but um, the idea then, once again, that um, 
these patients, there, that seems to be a potential risk factor that could maybe help with the treatment. Not proven, but probably not much of a harm if you've got a patient who so strongly suspect has this. So, you know, what about sleep with propofol? Because you'll you'll hear folks say, well, let's ramp up their propofol dose at night just so they get good, some good sleep. I hear that sometimes. Not not so much here, but I've, I've heard that. I've heard people say that. So the problem with propofol is in rats, it's true. Uh, it's been shown not to cause sleep deprivation in rats. That's true. But humans aren't rats. And it does suppress REM. But when we look at this in the Cochrane Review, they really have not been able to find um, in a small amount of randomized patients. But if we look at the Cochrane Review, insufficient evidence to see if propofol actually improves the quality and quantity of sleep in the ICU. So um, the EEG slow waves that we see when we're on propofol really resemble the slow waves of non-REM sleep in some studies. Point of this is propofol does not just give you a nice nap and sleep. And I, I have to watch myself because I'll tell patients when, when I'm wearing my anesthesia hat, anesthesiology hat, that, hey, we're going to go off to sleep. And it's kind of a little bit of a misnomer. Really, sedation is the right term. Okay. And then there's false propofol. I just want to put this out here because this may be something we see. I have not used it. It's four times more expensive than propofol. I'm going to show you the prices here in just a minute of all of these agents. It's inter very interesting, by the way. But delayed onset of action, but that's not good. We want, we like that propofol has a quick onset of action. That's a, that's a benefit to it, right? But it has less respiratory depression. And that's the thing when we use this outside of the ICU or even in the ICU, if we don't want to take someone's respiratory drive away, because propofol definitely does do that. Also says that it's less pain on injection, less hypertriglyceridemia, and it doesn't, it, it's actually formulated in a non um, lipid emulsion, so it's a clear drug, okay? Uh, I have not used this. I'll just leave this out there. It's something we might see. I Probably not in our system because it's really expensive and not sure if there's a lot more benefits yet, but maybe we'll hear more about this in some of the studies to come. All right, just finishing up with a couple more agents here then. Uh, here's another one where this is a gentleman who had a complex ventral hernia repair, and he was tach persistently tachypnic and very dyssynchronous on the ventilator. He was on propofol at a pretty good clip, not, not ridiculous dose, but a moderately good dose of propofol, as well as fentanyl at 100 mics per hour. So the question came up, why don't we put the patient on remifentanyl? Why don't we use that? Well, I bring this up because when we're talking about analgose sedation and we're talking about agents that maybe some of you may or may not have used, uh, this is one of the ones to think about, maybe um, or maybe not. So the half-life for before we talk about REMI, it's really important to understand the context sensitive half-time, because that's where we, if we're going to substitute one of our classic drugs like fentanyl, we want to know what advantage we might have with alternative opioids. And this is something we do a lot in the OR. We don't do this as much in the, in the ICU, uh, although our, with my team, we, we gave some fentanyl yesterday, so they got to see that. Um, but the half-life is different than the context-sensitive half-time. And when we talk about all of these agents, including propofol, this is a really important concept. The context-sensitive half-time is the time for the blood concentration of a drug to decline by one-half after you turn off the infusion, with the infusion being put on to maintain a steady state. So the context is really that duration of that infusion. Let me give you an example. 
When you put somebody on propyl, sorry, when you put somebody on fentanyl, you can see that blue line there goes right towards the sky. And you know this, you've seen it, I'm sure. Somebody's on high dose propofol for days and days and days. Then when we want to wake them up, they don't wake up that quickly anymore because this drug has rapid redistribution. It gets into the, all the fat cells everywhere in different muscle compartments. And this contact sensitive halftime becomes very relevant because the patient won't wake up. Um, you can see that this can occur pretty quickly, even after an hour or two of an infusion of fentanyl. There's other drugs, though, we can use, which we don't use in the ICU. We do use them in the, in the actual OR. L-fentanyl, sufentanyl, they have more of a ceiling effect. So um, they don't quite go through the, they don't quite go through the, the ceiling like fentanyl does. So they'll level off a little bit at, um, once they're on an infusion, which gives these drugs a little bit of an advantage. Um, we don't use them in the ICU, but we could, but we don't. Remifentanyl, on the other hand, is completely different. It's broken down by esterases. When you turn Remy off, it's gone in eight minutes. It doesn't matter if you've got renal failure or if you've got liver failure. And by the way, Remy is 250 times more potent than an equianalgesic dose of morphine. So it's super potent and it's super quick on, quick off. So sounds good so far, right? Sounds good. Sounds like a really good opioid that we might want to use for a part of an analgo sedation approach, potentially. Uh, and then once again, just to just to review half-life as opposed to content-sensitive half-time, this is really what I think all of you are familiar with. This is really just the time, you know, five half-lives are required to have negligible amount of drug left in your body. So a little different than the context-sensitive half-time when we're on an infusion, but just to put that up there for review. So once again, remifentanil, really potent, um, esterases, very predictable onset and offset. So this has been looked at in the ICU literature, multiple randomized studies with mixed results. Some have shown a reduction in ventilator days. Maybe there's a role in neurocritical care patients. I've used this once in a neurocritical care patient, once, because uh, it's really expensive, as I'll show you. And um, okay, maybe, but the problem we have with this is a lot of heterogeneity, really no difference in outcomes, and it is a more expensive drug. There's also the problem, as we'll talk about, of hyperalgesia. So once we zap somebody with Remy and really stimulate their opioid receptors with this, then we take it away, and it does go away quickly, it really does, then that patient can have hyperalgesia or may have more of a wind-up and have subsequent increased pain afterwards. So that's a consideration with Remy fentanyl, that rebound pain that they could have. Um, how do we dose it? Here's how we dose it. You know, um, you can give a bolus. Actually, it's a really good drug for intubation if you need to use it as an alternative. Um, but that's, the problem is this, the expense. That's problem number one with this drug. I mean, if we're going to compare it to fentanyl, and two mils is not a full day dose of remifentanil, but this is literally, as of last night, the most co current cost data on this drug. It's about $89 a vial. Fentanyl, for an entire day is around $22, okay? Um, I, I put 20 mils in there. It's really $22 a day. So um, that's way cheaper than Remy. And then when we get into our other agents like dexmedetomidine and propofol and ketamine, all those are around $20 a day. They're not as expensive as they used to be. Dex used to be one of the biggest offenders on this list, but that's, that price has really come down. So all these other drugs, these alternatives are all very, um, very uh, inexpensive compared to Remy. 
So if you've got a drug that stands out with that kind of cost, you better show that it's going to have some good effects because it's hard to justify increasing the cost by two, three, four, five times, right? The problem also, as I was mentioning, is that acute opioid tolerance and opioid-induced hyperalgesia. This is a very consistent effect when we use higher doses of Remy, like we would use in an ICU setting. It's a little bit less apparent when we combine it with propofol, maybe because of the GABA effect of propofol. But this is the problem with Remy, is that you get that hyperalgesia. So where would I encourage you to think about using this? Maybe if you've got a really short, painful procedure that you want to get through, it's a potential uh, agent you could use. Um, I don't know, uh, neuro patients, I think we have other alternatives that we've talked about here and continue to use. I'm not sure if it's really all that helpful in that population either, especially with the expense. But I wanted you to know about it because it is used elsewhere, some places that don't have cost restrictions like we do. Um, so something to think about. All right, last one here. Alcoholic pancreatitis, RAS consistently positive for, you remember that's in the red zone. We talked about that early in this lecture. Hitting and kicking the nurses, self-extubated twice, um, propofol and fentanyl, good, good doses of both. 75 is really our upper limit here at this hospital, which is below, by the way, the limit that's reported to be more commonly associated with PRIS. So that's, that's not a bad safety mechanism we have built into our pumps. We can exceed that, but we usually don't. The question is, what can we do? This guy's a beast. This guy's destroying our unit. Do we have anything else we can add here to calm this guy down? What can we do? Well, okay, what about dex? Dex metatomidine. Uh, I, this is a drug we all use. I think you all know this. A couple things to just highlight and remind you of is it's the alpha-2 receptors that really, where this works, the central alpha-2 receptors. And keep in mind, it has a pretty good, much higher affinity for the alpha-2s and the alpha-1s than clonidine. It's seven to eight times more higher alpha-2 targeting than clonidine. That's important to remember because when we transition to clonidine, thinking, hey, we'll get a little bit of the precedence X effect, we do that. We'll often trans, many of you probably do that. I, I know I've done it. I am doing it. We have a patient in our unit where we're doing this, you just have to keep in mind, it doesn't give you a dose-for-dose dose comparison to clonidine. It's the different alpha-2 versus alpha-1 ratios that we're dealing with, okay? Very good intranasal, and you can even put this in someone's cheek. The problem with all the other drugs we've been talking about is they have huge amount of first-pass hepatic metabolism. So if you were to have someone drink these drugs, the liver just clears it out quickly. Dex, on the other hand, actually works if you give it through the nose or through the cheek. You could do that. I have not done that, I'll be honest, but you could, and it's talked about. Clearance for Dex is very much dependent on hepatic blood flow. Now, unlike propofol, this drug does resemble more closely natural sleep, and it can actually mimic the deep recovery sleep we often see after sleep deprivation. So that's a potential benefit to our ICU patients. Pain transmission is suppressed, but the true analgesic effects of dexmedetomidine are not clear. And I want to be—I do—I want to be clear about that because it's not, in and by itself, an independent analgesic necessarily. It will opioid spare. It's great for respiratory because it shouldn't really depress your respiratory function. And the pain transmission certainly is suppressed, so it does have some pain effects. But it's, I can't quote any study that shows a, a milligram per milligram equianalgesic dose with DEX compared to, say, an opioid. It just doesn't 
not not the way this drug works. Uh, I'll skip through this. This is just some more physiology. We're, I want to get to some last comments about this stuff here. Cardiovascular effects. If you bolus this, and we do this a lot in the OR, we do this a lot in maybe in re, the resus bay or the ED. Just be careful because what you get with this is some initial hypertension. You wind up with a peripheral alpha 2B receptor activation that's eventually balanced by the central alpha 2As. You don't have to remember that. I mean, that's, that's how it, that's what's actually happening. And you can also get a baroreceptor effect, which causes some initial really intense bradycardia and hypertension. So if you're going to bolus it, be careful. You can bolus it. You just have to give it slowly. We recommend giving the bolus dose over, say, 10 minutes. And um, that's if you're going to bolus it. Just put it on a pump or just push it really slowly. We all know that it reduces the heart rate, and high doses are supposedly also in associated with increased in pulmonary vascular resistance. I'm not sure how clinically relevant that is because we just don't do a lot of PA catheters anymore. I haven't observed that, again, in the few patients that we're, we have PA cats and I do try to pay attention to it. Just don't really see that, but, but it is reported. What our usual dosing range is, as you, as you know, is 0.2 to 1.5. And here's an, two important points to make about DEX and as we wrap up here. One is, if you get above 1.5, multiple studies have shown that that's probably not that effective. You're probably not going to get that much bang for your buck if you go up to two. Now, do we do it? Sure, we do. I have a patient in my unit, right, our unit right now that we've got maxed out on Presidex. He's at two. Um, but I will tell you that the literature does not support these high doses as being more effective. So if you're not getting the sedation you need out of dexmedetomidine at around 1.5, you probably need to add another agent. And, in fact, that's what we're doing with the patient that's on two of dex, by the way. Um, the other thing is the heart rate. So what it – I, you know, when Dr. Hare was still here, he used to talk about titrating to a heart rate of around 80. Some people lower that to 70. I think what's important is just to watch out for bradycardia. This drug will cause bradycardia. So my practice is usually to try to target a heart rate of around 80 if we can. And if it starts to dip below that, we'll usually either cut it off, go to an alternative, or um, or just really be careful or definitely lower the dose if we're going to try to muscle through a heart rate of 60 to 70. Other quick things to talk about are the effects that have been shown in the MENS-1 and MENS-2 trials. The MENS-1's trial was a small trial, multi-center, double-blind. This is a patient, uh, this is Vanderbilt Washington Hospital Center. And, um, you know, these patients excluded neuropatients. So it was just um, very, a very specific ICU population. And in this study, they did show more patients, more patients were alive in the DEX group. That got the attention of a lot of people in critical care. This, by, by the way, published in JAMA, 2007, um, but, and there was a little bit more bradycardia in the DEX group, not surprising. Um, but then we looked at it in MENS2, and this was a double-blind multi-center RCT, 422 patients, adults. Uh, they excluded pregnant patients. They excluded patients with heart blocks, baseline cognitive impairment, and they did not they did not replicate the effects in the prior trial that showed uh, this mortality difference, that they weren't able to show that. They actually didn't show any difference in ventilator-free days, death at 90, or even global cognition at six months. And so the conclusion of this was it didn't lead to better outcomes. Doesn't mean we can't still use it. 
I think what this study shows is some equipoise between propofol and dexmedetomidine. Um, I think it's a good drug. It has a lot of good effects, as we've talked about here. And, um, in fact, one of the things that we like about dex is um, this, this small study, which is only 100 patients, but showed a pretty remarkable difference when this was used at night to help prevent some delirium. And so um, what's, what's not always teased out of this study is that the patient-reported sleep quality was actually unchanged, patient-reported, but they did see a lower incidence of delirium, which I think is a nice, um, nice effect. Is it neuroprotective? Maybe. Uh, it looks like there's a lot of experimental evidence that shows that it is, and it can maybe have other effects in terms of your immune system, your microcirculatory effects, and other potential beneficial effects. All right, so that's DEX, just a couple things there. Let's just quickly, I, I'll literally breeze through this. We're going to finish up here so I can answer a couple questions if you have uh, a minute or two. A um, couple comments about the atypicals. That's a, This is a whole separate talk. We should really just do this some other time. But um, there's comments about Halodol, doesn't reduce delirium, systematic review, I think the point with the atypical agents, and we all use them, at least at least I do, we use them because all the drugs we just talked about still leave gaps in our sedation plan. And so we turn to atypical agents and try to figure out which one is best and what to use. Um, I like this protocol. I, this is a non-evidence-based protocol. I call it the HAIR protocol for our former director of critical care, Dan HAIR. Um, he's, this is what he used to use, and uh, you can see this on, on our, my website if you want to look at this. I, what I really do try to encourage, though, is if you're going to use the atypicals, think about the receptor actions. Because if you look at, you know, like, for instance, Seroquel has a lot of H1 effects. That's really good if you've got a patient who's just going bonkers, that you need to just chill out a little bit. Um, risperidone might be a little better for those patients that are having those negative effects, like a flat effect. So maybe the other end of someone who's just flat but hypoactive delirium, you're trying to get them out of it, you're trying to, but you're having a balance in your sedation. Zyprex is another good one. Olanzapine has a lot of other effects, More better, maybe some more anxiolysis if anxiety is a big component. But take a look at the receptors and think about, um, think about what you're trying to accomplish and maybe pick your agent based on the receptor because the evidence – is not great out there for these agents, in my opinion. And the last thing is just an infographic that I made. So if you lose an IV and you're dealing with a middle of the night type of scenario where someone's jumping out of the bed, keep in mind, you can give a lot of these drugs IM. And this is just an infographic. I won't, I won't read this to you, but a lot of these drugs we can give IM, actually. Just have to know which ones you can. And there is some dosing modifications, but this is just a quick infographic, if you want, off of uh, my website. Two more, want to just do two more slides. We'll wrap this up. I just want to mention this drug because it's another one like phospropofol that I want you to know about. The advantage here is this is like a Me Too midazolam, only it's faster and it has a, a nice favorable half time of seven, eight minutes. This has not been a drug that I've used. I can only tell you that it's, um, it's something that may be coming potentially. Again, it's going to be more expensive. So, I think we just got to keep our eyes on this this drug because it may be something we see that we will use. Um, one last thing here that I want to show you is just keep in mind, we have a really good PADS algorithm here at the hospital. Just go to Policy Stat or go to my website. We have direct links to this. But if you're kind of on your first ICU rotation and trying to figure all this stuff out, 
we got a pretty prescriptive algorithm that we use, and we even use a, a, a very similar form of this in our ECMO patients. You can talk to Dr. Tabatabai about that. Um, very, um, very nice algorithm that talks about how we actually put all this together and how we should be looking at each dimension of pain, agitation, delirium, and sleep disturbance. And um, I, I think this is a good algorithm. It's very consistent with the national guidelines. I know that's one of our objectives I wanted you to have coming out of this talk. So I won't read this to you, but just be aware of it and refer to it if you need to get organized with your approach. One last thing I want to mention, because it may be coming here. We're really trying hard to do this here. We're approved to be a site at here at Maryland. It'll be Maryland and Hopkins. Vanderbilt actually enrolled a bunch of patients already. And that's the Setaconda. This is a device that actually can deliver inhalational anesthetics. The problem with doing inhalational anesthetics in the ICU is you've got to be able to scrub these gases out because otherwise you'll anesthetize the whole room. So you got to have a device that can actually scrub out the anesthetic, and that's what the Setaconda device does. I don't have any stock interest in this whatsoever, um, but I, I will be if we have this come here, uh, one of the primary investigators, and we'll probably be coming to your ICUs here at Maryland. Um, and again, our colleagues across the country are, are trying to also enroll. Vanderbilt being a very prominent institution that has, um, has really started to proceed with this trial. It's been looked at in Europe, and I'm, I'm thinking this is something that may be on the horizon for us in the ICU world because we all have these patients that despite all the drugs we give, they're still really difficult to sedate. And wouldn't it be nice if we could just put them on a general anesthetic maybe? And so in this 331-patient study, phase 3 RCT, they um, really just looked at the percent of time in the rascal, and they found that it was equivalent to propofol. So, so far, so good. They saw actually more spontaneous breathing as well, which is really good. So, some positive effects here that we could have with this, but we need to understand it and study it a little bit more. Uh, we've been using these agents for ages, but just not in the ICU. So hopefully this may be something we can study here at Maryland. Um, we're waiting for the nursing board to approve this because it will require a nursing infusion pump. All right, um, that's it. Uh, I won't read the summary statements here. I'm going to jump right to the last. I think I went right to the limit on this, a little longer than I thought. Sorry about that. But I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take any questions for those that want to stay on the line. And if not, just email me. Check out our website if you'd like. There's links to all this stuff there, as well as some QR codes for both the references here for this lecture and uh, and beyond. Appreciate your time today. Dr. Galvano, that talk was amazing. I'm sorry I missed the very beginning of it, but it was a, sh a delight to sort of see the middle and the end. Um, thank you for sharing your expertise with us as always.